Good morning. It's good to, good to have you here this morning. If you're new with us, welcome to Calvary. Can I have everyone turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5? By this time you open your Bible, it just automatically opens to John 5. But if you knew, once again, we uh, welcome you. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And we are in chapter 5. And starting in chapter 5, the animosity of the Jewish leadership against Jesus has really uh, risen exponentially. Uh, they have entered into a murderous hatred for the Lord Jesus. And in chapter 5, because he healed a man on the Sabbath, they have put him on trial. Now, not literally. That will happen later when they turn him over to Pilate the morning of his crucifixion. But right now, at very least, they have put him on trial in their hearts and in the court of public opinion as a lawbreaker because in their mind he healed a guy on the Sabbath. That was a violation of Sabbath law. And he's a blasphemer also because he claims to be the Son of God. And in the Jewish mindset, that always meant a, f a son was equal with his father. And so, in a roundabout way, he was claiming to be God. Blasphemy. In verses 19 to 29, Jesus testifies, picking up on this language of a courtroom, Jesus testifies in his own defense by claiming, by defending his claim of equality with the father based on five truths or evidences. First of all, God is his Father. Now he said that, of course, and he goes on to prove it, but God is his Father. That, first of all, makes him equal with the Father. Secondly, he was doing the same miraculous works the Father uh, is doing. Number three, the Father has given him power over life and death. Number four, the Father has given him authority to judge the world. If you weren't here when we study these in detail, they may not sound to you like they prove Jesus' divinity. If you're just hearing them kind of the first time, uh, go online and, and, and listen to the prior studies because we showed how each of these statements uh, is absolute proof Jesus is who he claimed to be. And finally, that the Father wants the Son to receive as much honor as himself. Now again, all of these become powerful and irrefutable facts to substantiate Jesus' claim of divinity and equality with the Father. Now, after testifying in his own defense, Jesus, also represent, representing himself as defense attorney, listen, calls not one, not two, not even three, but four witnesses to the stand, if you will, to give testimony that he is in fact who he claims to be, Son of God and uh, Messiah and Savior. And those four witnesses are John the Baptist, Miraculous Works, the Father himself, and the Scriptures. Now, the verse that sets up this section that runs from verse 32 through verse 47 is verse 31. And we're just reviewing still from last week, where Jesus said in John 5, 31, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, in saying that, Jesus, of course, is not saying that his testimony of himself that he is God was unreliable or patently false, so that other witnesses needed to be brought forward whose testimony could be trusted. Obviously, he's not saying that. Rather, he is simply acknowledging that Jewish law dictated 
that at least two or three witnesses were required before a valid judgment could be rendered in a Jewish court. That comes out of Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Jesus understood the law. He gave the law to Moses from Mount Sinai. Of course, he knew what the law said. Um, but he had just told the leaders that he is God. But he knows, because they're judging him, right? He knows that according to Jewish law, his testimony alone was not enough. And now the Lord Jesus calls on four witnesses who will corroborate his testimony with regard to his claim of deity. And as we just said, the first one to take the stand, if you will, in the Lord's defense, and again, remember now, he was fighting their accusations that he was a lawbreaker and a blasphemer. The first one to take the stand in the Lord's defense was his forerunner or herald, John the Baptist. You see, Jesus Christ, the way he is going to refute uh, these accusations is by proving his divinity. I mean, God can't be a lawbreaker of his own law, uh, nor can he blaspheme himself. So those were the charges. Jesus responds by saying, look, I'm God, okay? I'm God. As the Lord of the Sabbath, I can suspend the Sabbath for a time, although he didn't do that. He didn't break the Sabbath. And as God, I'm not blaspheming myself to say, I am God, okay, all right? But he caught, but he, he goes along with what they're doing, okay, and submits to it. And so now he's bore witness of himself, and now he begins to call other witnesses to corroborate his testimony. John the Baptist was the first one he called uh, to the stand, if you will. Verse 32, there's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, Last time we said that when John started his public ministry, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. Ever since Malachi ended, the last book in our Old Testament, uh, God had not spoken to the nation through a prophet in over 400 years. Now again, the nation was heartbroken. They thought that God had forsaken him. All right, And then all of a sudden, 400 years later, a strange character shows up in the wilderness dressed in a kind of a modified Tarzan outfit, eating locusts and wild honey and crying out, make way for the Lord. Prepare your hearts, Messiah's coming. Well, this created a wave of messianic fervor in the nation. In fact, many believed that John himself might be the Messiah. And because so many people were going out to the wilderness to hear John preach and be baptized by him, well, it... Um, it got the attention of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem who sent a delegation out to find out who this guy was. We talked about this last time. You can read it for yourself, John 1, 19-27. The gist of it was they asked him one very important question. John, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I am not. Who are you? I am the one that Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Our Isaiah 40, verse 3. I'm the one Isaiah prophesied about. The one that God said was going to come before his Messiah, a voice crying out in the wilderness, telling people to get ready, get your hearts right, Messiah is coming. And here Jesus reminds them of this very testimony that John gave to these guys on that day. Verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. In other words, what Jesus is saying to these men, you remember that John bore witness of me 
when he told you that he wasn't the Messiah, but was my herald, who went before me to prepare the hearts of the people through repentance to receive me as their king. And then Jesus called John, verse 35, a burning and shining lamp. You have to understand something. The Jewish people saw the word of God as a light, right? Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's just one verse of many we can look at in the Old Testament. The Jewish people saw God's word as a light and a prophet as a light bearer, as a lamp burning for God. When John the Baptist showed up, he was a lamp burning in the minds of the people. He, there had been no prophet in Israel for over 400 years preaching, uh, preaching God's word, being a light to the nation, as the prophets were, good prophets. And so John became that light, that burning and shining lamp. But understand it, please don't miss this. John became a light, but only in the sense that he pointed people to the true light, Jesus Christ. Turn back to John 1 for a second. And let's look at verse 6, first of all. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, that's John the Baptist. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light. And of course, he's talking about Jesus, how John came to point the way to Jesus. Jesus was the true light, which gives light to every man, woman, coming into the world. When Jesus said that John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light, he was speaking of how initially people were drawn to John's light. To John's ministry. They rejoiced in John's light. The first prophet in over 400 years. He was a celebrity initially. Everyone wanted to be around John. People were flocking by the hundreds and probably the thousands out to the wilderness to hear from God. Finally a prophet. Somebody that will give us the light of God's truth. And so initially, boy were they excited. They rejoiced in that light. But only for a while. Because as John began to hit hard the message of repentance, well, the people, especially the Jewish leadership, began to reject him. You know, people will tolerate you as a Christian or some kind of a pastor or preacher on TV as long as that person tells people what they want to hear. So a lot of men-pleasing going around today. That's some of the biggest ministries, not all big ministries, I like this, but some of the biggest ministries in America today are being led by man-pleasers. People that tell people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Paul said, if I seek to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. I'm no longer. And he said in another place, do I, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Well, yeah. A lot of folks, they don't want to hear the truth. They want their ears tickled. Paul the Apostle said in the last days, one of the major problems in the church will be that people will not want to hear sound teaching from God's word any longer, but they will want to gather to themselves teachers who will tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear, and will turn away from God's truth to these fairy tales. We're seeing it today. And that's what happened with John's ministry. Initially, everyone was excited about this new prophet after all these years. But John was not a man pleaser, anything but. He was a straight shooter. 
And as John began to shoot straight and calling people out on how they were living, oh, they didn't like that. You know, they didn't like that at all. And so they began to turn against God. Began to turn, turn against John, I should say, and of course, ultimately God. Um, so Jesus, you know, after uh, calling John the Baptist to the stand to testify in his behalf that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he then called another witness to the stand, a greater witness than even John, the works that Jesus did in the Father's name. Verse 36, But I have a greater witness than John's for the works, the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The Greek word for works could simply refer to the activities associated with any occupation. And of course, Jesus' occupation, quote-unquote, was Messiah. And his work was redemption. The work of saving the lost. Therefore, and it becomes very clear as you read the Gospels, therefore, every activity he did was focused, was focused on finishing that work. In John 4, 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the, the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And thank God he did. John 19, 30, from the cross, he cried, It is finished, bowed his head, and dismissed his spirit. And so these works would include a number of things in a very broad sense. Uh, everything from Jesus' sinless life and perfect obedience to his Father, uh, to his teaching that revealed the light of God's truth to those in spiritual darkness. Further, they included the miracles he did that testified to who he claimed to be, culminating in the ultimate work of redemption, of course, his death on Calvary's cross, and three days later, resurrecting from the dead bodily. All of those constitute the works that Jesus did, the Father gave him to do. However, guys, I do believe that in this passage we're studying, the works that the Lord Jesus primarily was referring to, when he talked about the works, were the miracles that he went around doing. Remember, that's how John 5 started. He performed a miracle by healing a guy who had been lame for 38 years. That started this whole uh, controversy and a firestorm that he healed, had the audacity to heal a guy in the Sabbath day. Forget that the poor guy had been crippled for 38 years, couldn't work, had to rely on the generosity of others to survive, no social programs back then, workman's comp or whatever else. I mean, you'd think that religious leaders would have been happy for a man that had been healed after all those years. No, no, no. It was all about their, you know, religion and their rules and their regulations. They didn't care, could care less about this guy who had been healed. But um, these miracles bore witness that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah sent from God because the miracles were according to what God had prophesied Messiah would do when he came. Now, hold on to that thought. We will really hit it next week, so I'm going to leave it. Till next week as we finish John 5. But the works bore witness. He calls them to the stand, if you will, to give testimony, to bear witness of his claims of deity. 
Nicodemus recognizes John chapter one, uh, 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. So he represented a small group of, of rabbis and Pharisees. Uh, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, they were not all bad, uh, bad guys. He was a good guy. So was Saul of Tarsus. Nicodemus was an Old Testament. Well, he didn't call it the Old Testament. We do. He was a, a scholar of the Jewish scriptures. And he know, knew what the scriptures said was, the Messiah was going to do when he showed up. The works that he did was going to do. And Nicodemus is saying that to Jesus. We, we know... Basically, I'll paraphrase, we know that you're the Messiah. You are doing all the works that God said Messiah would do when he came. Nobody could do the works you're doing unless God was with him. We, a small group of us, have come to believe you are the Messiah. And you can finish reading John 3, how Jesus dealt with Nicodemus. But he goes on, Jesus does in John 10, verse 25. He said, I told you and you don't believe. I, I've told you who I am, but you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, listen, they bear witness of me. And of course, John the Apostle, as he started to bring his gospel to a close, in John 20, verses 30 and 31, he said, And truly Jesus did many other miracles in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. See, I, I couldn't fit them all in. He did so many. All the books in the world couldn't contain all the miracles he did. Now, I've chosen these, and this is important. Hang on to that thought. As we get into chapter 6, wow. John organized his gospel around, around seven specific miracles, all designed to prove who Jesus was. But, John says, I couldn't include them all in my gospel, but I've written these to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The works, the miracles, testified to who Jesus was. Now, let me just stop and say this. It's true that miracles alone, alone, didn't prove Jesus' divinity because other men in the Old Testament did miracles, right? From God. Moses, Elijah, Elisha did many miracles, all right? In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, God says to his people, look, there are going to come false prophets down the road. And they're going to have miraculous abilities because they're empowered by the devil. Now look it. When they come, you're going to, here's how you're going to know them. Don't look at the miracle because Satan has miraculous power. Okay? But if they come to you and work a miracle, but here's how you're going to know if they're from me or not. If they then lead you to follow other gods, they're a false prophet. Stone them. Now I'm, I'm, I'm going to be watching you on this. I'm going to test your hearts to know if you're loyal to my word or to some supernatural sign. Too many in the church today are drawn to the miraculous, which can be easily manipulated and used to deceive, and are not focusing on what God has said in his word. Very important. Jesus warned that many false prophets and even false Christs would arise and be used by Satan to deceive many by doing supernatural wonders um, just prior to his return to the earth, just prior to Jesus' second coming. 
he said spiritual deception would ramp up to the point it would be um, uh, 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 you know this, this this teaching false teaching but it would have the miraculous behind it uh, you know and but but it's not from me these these miracles are not from me I'm telling you in advance but they're going to be so powerful if I hadn't warned you uh, even the elect would be deceived okay this is not sleight of hand uh, illusion parlor tricks this is real live miraculous ability from the devil Paul echoed that and told us the greatest worker of lying signs and wonders would be the Antichrist himself. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 11. This man, the Antichrist, will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and wonders, miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would have saved them. They rejected the gospel. Okay? So God will cause them to, greatly be, to be greatly deceived, and they will believe these lies. Hold on to that, though. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. So, guys, miracles alone didn't prove that Jesus was God incarnate. But you see, with every witness, um, well, you're reaching a critical mass at one point. Okay? Yes, John the Baptist testified that Jesus was the Christ, but he's a man, okay? Men can lie. Well, miracles attested to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, who he claimed to be. But Satan can manipulate miracles and do lying signs and wonders. So Jesus now calls the third witness to the stand, the Father, the Father. And he said in verse 37, the Father himself who sent me, has testified of me. So this third witness that Jesus calls to give testimony in his behalf, the Father. Now, when it comes to the miracles Jesus did, the scriptures actually say the Father was doing the work through his Son in an effort to prove the Son's divinity to establish Jesus' uh, testimony of himself. The Father sent the Son the Father knows the Son is God incarnate. The Father wanted the world to know that. And the Father also uh, came alongside the Son and gave testimony to the fact that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be. And part of the way the Father uh, substantiated the Lord's claims of divinity was by doing works uh, on, the, on the Son's behalf. And John 14, I'm going to turn it real quick. John 14. Verse 10. This is the night before the cross in the upper room with his disciples. They're still wrestling with doubts. They're still not sure about some things. He said in verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? That we're one? That we're the same God? You don't believe that yet? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or listen, else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. These were powerful evidences that the Father was doing through the Son to testify to who Jesus was. Acts 2.22 
Peter said in the day of Pentecost to the Jews there who uh, had come for the feast of Pentecost and now saw the Spirit of God poured out and Jesus, excuse me, Peter gives that first uh, Spirit-filled sermon of the church age. And uh, verse 22 of Acts 2, men of, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God the Father did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So the Father was giving testimony uh, to the, of the Son by the works the Son was doing. But also, guys, the Father testified verbally on the Son's behalf. You remember that twice from heaven. The Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, right? Once, when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, Matthew 3, and again on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, John, and of course Jesus himself went up to this high mount, and uh, Jesus began to radiate like the sun. Moses and Elijah appeared. They had a conversation about the second coming. Read Peter, first Peter, second Peter 1. Uh, and again, the voice from heaven, the Father boomed from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah, Law and the Prophets, Old Testament. My word, but it was pointing to the new covenant. My son, hear him now. Him, hear him. In fact, this was such a powerful experience that uh, Peter mentions the Mount of Transfiguration event in his second epistle, which we're going to study in detail, God willing, Wednesday night. But um, Peter talks about this, starting in verse 16. He said, look, we did not fo follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about this event on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus gave these men a, a little preview of his second coming glory. And we didn't make this up, Peter said, okay? This wasn't a made-up bunch of lies. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, the Shekinah glory, on top of the mount there, where the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were, uh, when we were with him on the holy mountain. The Father twice audibly from heaven gave witness of the Son. Turn to Hebrews 1, because in Hebrews chapter 1, this is probably, in my mind, the most powerful testimony of the Father uh, for the Son's divinity. Hebrews chapter 1. And let's pick it up in verse 1. I'll read you the first, the first nine verses, a little longer than we would usually read, but this is very important. You talk about the Father giving testimony of the Son's divinity and equality and so on with the Father. This is it. This is the, this is the Cadillac of passages, okay, on the subject. And, and uh, the writer said, God who at various times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets. So in the Old Testament times, God spoke in various ways to the patriarchs uh, through the prophets. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, 
And when he had by himself purged our sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than angels. The writer is trying to prove the superiority of Jesus over angels. Jews were, people were into angels quite a bit, okay? But, but, but Messiah Jesus eclipsed them. No, no contest. And so, you know, um, he goes, he's saying that, having some, so much better than the angels, as he uh, has by inheritance obtained a, a more excellent name than they, verse 5. For to which of the angels, angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Uh, when uh, he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. You know, worship, angels will not worship, the good angels, will not worship any false god. When the father said to the angels, worship the son, he was saying, this is God in human form, worship him. Of course, they know who he was. In verse 7, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. They're pretty powerful beings. Uh, the writers, I'm not downplaying how powerful angels are. Um, but to the son, okay, he said, this, this is important. To the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The father right here calls the son God. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So here we have the father calling the son God and then saying to the son, I'm your God. Of course, they're the Trinity, along with the Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are all co-equal. They are all one God. So the powerful testimony, right, of the Father saying to the Son, you are God. Back in John 5, verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. Now he's talking to these religious leaders. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Let me start with that second one. You have not seen his form. Well, that's because God is spirit. Jesus said that clearly in John 4, 24. And a spirit has no physical form. A spirit has no physical form. And because God is an invisible spirit, he manifested himself through his flesh and blood son to this world. You don't have to turn there, but Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul the Apostle said that he, Jesus Christ, is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word image there is a Greek word that was used of an image made by impression, as when the image of Caesar was stamped on a coin. And that's what Paul's picking up on. He's basically saying the Father, God the Father, stamped his image on human flesh in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ, which allowed man to see what God was like. God is spirit and is therefore invisible. But through the incarnation, the invisible God became a visible flesh and blood man. John points this out in chapter 1, verse 18 of his gospel. No one has seen God at any time in all of his fullness and majesty. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, 
he has manifested him. Because Jesus was the perfect, as Paul said in Colossians 1.15, he was the image of the invisible God. In other words, he was the perfect representation of God the Father in human form. Perfect representation. You remember again in the upper room, the night before the cross, they're having a conversation over the Passover meal. And Philip, good guy, good name, Philip, anyone named Philip can't be too bad, okay? But Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show you the Father? Again, the perfect manifestation of the Father, one God, one God, absolutely equal. Now, that first part of the verse where he says to these men, you know, you, you, you've, you've not seen his form, but you, you've never heard his voice. Understand that even though the Father had audibly, audibly spoken um, at the baptism of Jesus and on the Mount of Transfiguration, well, these corrupt, hard-hearted Jewish leaders were not there. Now, I know they weren't there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I know that. It's only Peter, James, and John, of course, Jesus himself. And then if you want to count Moses and Elijah, okay. Uh, but that was it. We know that. So they, they weren't on the Mount of Transfiguration to hear the Father speak as he testified that Jesus was his beloved son. Which means the only other place they could have, could have audibly heard the Father declare from heaven that Jesus was his beloved son was at Jesus' baptism. But Jesus said... They weren't there either because they had never heard the Father audibly give testimony of Jesus' divinity as his Son. That's what he seems to be saying in verse 37. You have never heard his voice. Now look, and don't miss this because the rest of the message is going to be built around this idea. The Father could have spoken to these Jewish leaders audibly from heaven if he had chosen to do so. But he didn't really need to, as, seeing as he had spoken to them so many times in the pages of their Holy Scriptures, our Old Testament, about the Messiah and what he would be like, what he would do, how he would be born, where he would be born, what time in history he would be born. I mean, guys, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament of Christ's first coming, over 500 in the, for, about his second coming. The idea was these guys were so hard-hearted and spiritually blind they couldn't see it when Jesus pointed out to them, look, you search the he said in another place, uh, the volume of the book is written of me, guys. The volume, and, 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 and then we'll study this in detail next time. But these guys, these guys were so blind to what God was actually saying. Why? Because of their hard-heartedness, their rebellion. Here they got their holy scriptures loaded with prophecy about, prophecies about the Messiah. But when Jesus came, he said, he said to them, you know, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. But it is they that testify of me, and yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. The 
So the father was constantly, guys, and audibly speaking to these men through the ministry of his son, whom they refused to believe and listen to. John 5, 38, Jesus said to these guys, but you, you corrupt religious leaders, do not have his word. You, you can't hear his voice because you don't have his word in your heart. Because whom he sent him, me, you refuse to believe. And so to the Father, excuse me, and so the Father would say no more to these men other than what Jesus was already declaring every day through his public ministry. And at one point, even Jesus stopped speaking to these guys. Not literally. But if you read Matthew 13, up until that point, he had been teaching very simply and straightforwardly. But these men were getting harder and harder hearted. In fact, at this point now, they no longer want to hear anything Jesus has to say in the way of uh, declaring who he is. They've rejected him out of hand. Now they only want to hear his words so they can find something to use against him. Because of it, Jesus now goes underground, you might say. He starts teaching in a cryptic way. He starts teaching using parables. That was such a departure from the plain, simple teaching that he had been doing up until that point when he finished teaching for the day and went back to the house where they were staying. His disciples challenged him by saying, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you teaching the multitudes in parables? Here's what he said. Because there are some who have open hearts and will understand. My spirit will make sure of that. But those who are hard-hearted... They're not going to understand. It's been given to you to understand the, the secrets of the, uh, the mysteries of the kingdom. But to them, it's not been given. I mean, because they see, but they don't really understand. They, they hear, but they don't really listen. Their hearts have grown hard. And therefore, because they don't want the truth, you know what? Now they don't get the truth. They don't get the truth. Any person who wants to know God's truth, I don't care if they're living in some remotest part of an African jungle somewhere, if God has got to send an angel to give them the gospel, he'll do it. Because nobody goes to hell that wants to know the truth, but didn't have access to it. But for those people who hear the truth over and over and the gospel over and over again, a lot of folks in our country, and they mock it, They've rejected it, and so on. Well, Jesus said, those who are faithful to the little light they have, God's truth, God will give them more light. But those who are not faithful, who don't really love the truth, what little light they have will eventually be taken from them, and they will have total darkness. Total darkness. To the hard, rebellious, and obstinate-hearted person, God will only say so much and only for so long until he stops speaking and goes silent because of the hardness of a person's heart. We read in John's Gospel, the Pharisees, they would not believe, they would not believe, they would not believe. Chapter 12, they could not believe. But there comes a time when God says you've, got a, you've, you've, you've heard enough truth, you don't love the truth, therefore you no longer get the truth. And God goes silent. Um, 
I think the supreme example of this was the morning of the crucifixion. When they brought Jesus to Pilate, Pilate knew real quick that this was an innocent guy. He was being railroaded. And Pilate didn't want to be involved in this. He, he had the creeps about this whole thing. Okay, and then his wife tells him, "Don't have. I had a dream last night. Have nothing to do with this just man. You just leave him alone. To get get out of this thing." So he starts freaking out. He thinks he's the son of a god or something. You know. Then his wife says he's a just man. Have nothing to do with him, and he starts freaking out. So he asks him, "Where are you from?" Well, Galilee. Oh, that's Herod's jurisdiction. He's in town for the Passover. Kick, drop kick this guy over to Herod. So he did. When Herod heard. Jesus was waiting to speak to him, or with, you know, Herod goes out there all excited because you know he knew who Jesus was. Herod's jurisdiction was the Galilee. Jesus did most of his ministry in the in the Galilee region. I mean, Herod knew who he was. He knew what he taught. Uh, he knew the miracles he did. And Herod was all excited because he wanted Jesus to perform a miracle for him, entertain him. And he stood before Herod, and Herod said, you know. Started talking to the Lord, and Jesus said not a word to him. Not a word. No matter what Herod said, Jesus wouldn't say a word. A little microcosm. I mean, if people want the truth, God will speak to them all day long. Through his word, through other people. If they are hard-hearted and obstinate, rebellious, and don't really want the truth, but want to mock it and things, but they're not against God helping them with a miracle or a healing, or bless my job, or whatever. A lot of unbelievers will talk to God when they want his help. But until they repent, I'm convinced God is silent. Herod never did repent. But Jesus was silent to him. And um, Jesus made it clear that to reject his testimony of himself was tantamount to rejecting the Father because the Father had testified at different times and in various ways that Jesus was, and of course is, the Son of God. Again, twice, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Twice audibly. John, though, picking up on the words of Christ in his first epistle, uh, expanded on this. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. Listen to what John said. <clears throat> he's picking up on this whole incident with the Pharisees and scribes. Uh, and he's talking about it in his first epistle. He, he said, you know, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of, the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. In other words, you, you cannot reject the son and love the father. Those people that believe, well, we love God, but we don't believe in Jesus, they're fooling themselves. Jesus said it, we studied it last week, and John is saying it right here. So the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who claim they love God the Father, but don't really uh, believe Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, almighty God in human form. He's the brother of Lucifer, the Mormons believe. Uh, he was a created being, the JWs teach. And I'll tell you what, more, uh, Muslims fit into that category too. Because if you were to look at the, at the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount, and I've been there, but I don't read Arabic. I went online 
and I pulled it up and I read people that know Arabic to confirm what I had heard was true. And on the very top of the Dome of the Rock, it has the words in Arabic, uh, God, uh, God does not beget, neither is he begotten. That's a slam against our Lord. Jesus Christ is not God. And they think that God had literal sex with Mary. They don't have their theology straight at all. It's not what we believe. But they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Son equal with the Father. But let me just say this as we wind this down. Jesus Christ, guys, is the true light. The true light who was sent by the Father into this world to give the light of God's truth to every person living in spiritual darkness, John 1, verse 9. And guys, let me say this. There comes a point in the life of every unbeliever who continually rejects the light of God's truth, where, where God eventually turns out the lights. They don't want the light. They love darkness rather than light. At one point, God turns out the light. And the Holy Spirit stops speaking to their hearts, stops convicting them about their need for salvation. There was a story from World War, from World War II, true story, that I think illustrates this in some way. Let me read it to you. The author says, During World War II, an American naval force in the North Atlantic was engaged in heavy battle, uh, in heavy battle with enemy ships and submarines on an exceptionally dark night. Six planes took off from the carrier to search out those targets, but while they were in the air, a total blackout was ordered for the carrier in order to protect it from attack. Without lights on the carrier's deck, the six planes could not possibly land. They made a radio request for the lights to be turned on just long enough for them to come in, but because the entire carrier, with its several thousand men, would have been put in jeopardy, no lights were permitted. When the six planes ran out of fuel, they had to ditch in the freezing cold water of the North Atlantic, and all the crew members perished into eternity, end quote. God also reaches a point when he turns out the lights, and the opportunity for salvation is then gone forever. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. If God is speaking to your heart right now, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Receive Christ right now because you don't know whether or not this might be your last time to ever hear the gospel. You say, I'm young. i got plenty of years left. That's not true. The Bible says tomorrow is not promised to anyone. You could leave here, God forbid, and get in an automobile accident and be in, in eternity in, a, in an instant. Or you can, in the, in the day we're living in, you can go into the 7-Eleven, buy a gallon of milk, and some crazy nut job comes in with a gun, starts shooting up the place and kill you. And if you waste that last opportunity, because you never know which one is going to be the last opportunity, if you hear his voice right now, don't harden your heart is the idea, right? But if you reject that last opportunity to receive Christ at that point, the opportunity for salvation, listen, has been officially withdrawn and, and you've passed the spiritual point of no return, if I can put it that way, and have committed what Jesus called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is the only unforgivable sin because it's the sin of rejecting Christ. At that point, the day of grace has ended for you 
and a person's eternal destruction and destiny is now sealed. I really don't have time to get into it. Let me just quickly say this. This is what happened with Judas. Judas, remember? The night of the Passover meal. I mean, Jesus loved Judas. He told Judas the same truth he told all these other disciples. Jesus knew what Judas was planning, planning on doing, but he loved Judas and didn't want him to go through with it. Even up to the point where when they uh, reclined at the table for the Last Supper, the person in front of Jesus was John, right? And the one behind Jesus was Judas. Now, from what I understand, those were not positions anyone can just pick. They were positions of honor. You were reclining in front of and in back of the guest of honor, the host. The host had to appoint those seats to you. At the very end, Jesus was trying to say to Judas, I'm honoring you. I don't want you to go through with this. When Jesus dipped the bread in the sop and gave it to Judas, and that culture was like proposing a toast. He was trying to do everything he could to, to have Judas not go through with this. But at one point, Judas stands up and, and leaves the room, right? The disciples thought he's going to go out and buy some bread or something, you know? But when Judas left the room, remember what it says in John's Gospel? And it was what? Night. Of course it was night. Passover meal didn't start until the sun went down. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit is saying, and it was night for Judas. The day of salvation had come to an end. It was his eternal destiny, destruction, was now set in stone. It was night. The day of grace, the opportunity to be saved, was over. And it wasn't Jesus' fault. It was because of what Judas wanted. And guys, I really think this is what Jesus was referring to. When he said that these men, this, these religious leaders, had never heard God speaking, okay? Um, I believe what he was really saying, they never heard God speaking to their hearts. Not that God wasn't speaking. They weren't listening. And why weren't they listening? Because their hearts were so hard with rebellion and pride and it made their heart insensate to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to the voice of God. And because of their pride and rebellion, well, it had made them deaf to the voice of God. Let me end by saying that God, in his great love, desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God said very clearly through the prophet Ezekiel, I get no pleasure out of sending anyone to hell, please turn, please turn from your sin. Come to me. I'm gracious and merciful. I'll receive you. But why will you die? Why will you go on living in rebellion when I'm offering you salvation? I get no pleasure out of sending a person to hell. Turn from your sin. Come to my son. And God will do whatever he has to do to bring a person, to get their attention, to bring them to his son. And boy, I've seen some people that, wow, you know, the way of the transgressor is hard. You know, I've seen people so beat up with their sin 
you know, they, they basically crawl to the altar of grace, you know, bloody and it's all because of their own sin. But, but God finally gets a hold of them. They crawl to the, Lord, I, I repent. Oh, come on, get you patched up. I mean, you know, but sin beats the life out of people. But that's how God uses it. Sometimes they get our attention and bring us to Christ, right? And I believe he does this not just with individuals, but also with nations. And I'll close with this. Nations like ours. I mean, we see God. I don't know how you read the news or watch the news. Here's how I watch it and how I read it. I see God using storms like hurricanes on our east coast and wildfires and earthquakes on our west coast to get people's attention. We see the anger and unrest in our streets as our nation has become deeply divided, right? The uprising, the hatred of one group against another. We know that the Bible says Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he likes to divide so he can conquer. The fact that we are such a divided nation with so much hatred tells me we are not really a nation under God. We are a nation being controlled by the devil right now because that's what people really want. And he's trying to get our attention. Mass shootings. They become so routine, the, the, uh, the media often doesn't even report all of them. Sometimes I'll hear about one, uh, and it's like, when did that happen? I, I didn't hear that from the news. No, only the big ones now get on the news, which is very sad. We see God, I think, using the financial cliff we're hanging over. $20 trillion debt, are you kidding me? And God's got us dangling over this cliff of financial destruction to get our attention. To wake us up. I mean, what does God have to do to fully get our attention? I mean, I shudder to think about it. And yet for all that's going on, for all, God is screaming through all these things to get our attention. Instead of repenting and getting our lives right with God, many in our country are voting for socialism, which is really communism light. This tells me that many in our country, and the number is going up every day, especially young, young people, tells me that many in our country are looking to government to take care of them instead of God. Remember what Thomas Jefferson said? A government big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have. Be careful what you wish for. You know? Our rights have been given by God. They're inalienable. Why? Because they were given to us by God. What the state giveth, the state can taketh away. Be careful. As a nation, what we wish for. I'm wondering what is going to be next. I hope and pray it's revival. Will you pray with me? We need revival. Now, here's something. And I don't want to, if I leave you go right now, you're going to think, man, am I depressed. I was hoping to come to church and get uplifted a little bit. Okay? All right. I'm sorry. Okay? But let me just try to put a little different perspective on this, and I'll let you go. You see things getting worse and worse and worse all around us, don't you? Do you know that God will sometimes allow us to, get, to go through one problem after another, one crisis, one calamity, one natural disaster after another, 
because he loves us. And the Bible says that sometimes he has to shout. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers in our pleasure, he shouts in our pain. When a people become so dull of hearing that it takes catastrophes to get their attention, God will do that because he loves us. And it could be that we are on the verge of a revival and a great awakening. And it looks bad now. looks pretty bleak. But God is saying, it's always black as before the dawn. Now you guys keep praying. And you keep trusting me. And remember, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear your prayers from heaven. I'll forgive your sins. I'll heal your land. So you got to get yourselves right. You're my people. You know the truth. Get yourselves right. And you pray. And I will act. And I pray he acts with revival and not with judgment. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. How you gave us your son to be our savior. And your truth to be a light that we guide, that guides us as we walk through this life. And Lord, give us grace to be that light. Give us grace, Lord, to walk in your truth. That we might be a light in the darkness for folks that don't know you. And Father, we thank you. We love you. We ask you, Lord, to keep blessing these studies in your word for your glory. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.